Welcome back to Altered States of Context. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Ingmar Gorman. I first met Ingmar a year ago when I was doing the MAPS clinical training for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. He was one of the two group leaders for the small group I was in and got to know him a little bit and really appreciated his perspective and enthusiasm and I'm excited to have the opportunity to present our interview with him today on the podcast. Dr. Gorman is a co-founder of Fluence, a psychedelic education company training mental health providers in psychedelic treatments. He received his clinical training in New York City at the New School for for Social Research, Mount Sinai, Beth Israel Hospital, Columbia University, and Bellevue Hospital. He has been an investigator on multiple trials and a co-therapist on uh, many others, um, including MDMA for psychotherapy and post-traumatic stress, um, as well as psilocybin for depression. He's published on the topics of classic psychedelics, ketamine, MDMA, and psychedelic harm reduction and integration. In the interview today, we talk about the current state of psychedelic training programs and his company, Fluence. We talk some about the history of psychedelics in the Czech Republic. We talk metaphors for psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, and we just cover all kinds of ground and just kind of have a open-ended conversation. He's a very interesting person to talk to with a pretty broad and unique perspective and we hope you enjoy the interview thanks for listening and as always if you enjoy the show please share with others help other people find us so that we can broaden and deepen the conversation about psychedelics in culture and psychedelic assisted psychotherapy at this point in time thank you enjoy the show So welcome back. We are here with Ingmar Gorman, who is a psychologist and, among many other things, the CEO and co- um, co-founder of Fluence Training. And um, I guess to get the ball rolling, Ingmar, why don't you just tell us a little bit of your background, uh, how you came to uh, be where you're at with Fluence, and also while you're at it, um, talk about what Fluence does. Sure. Uh, thank you. So. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate the, uh, the, uh, introduction. Thank you. Um, so my interest in psychedelics began roughly in 2005. I was living in Prague in the Czech Republic at the time. I had just, uh, taken a leave of absence from the university of Chicago and I was around 20 years old, 21, uh, kind of rediscovering myself. And, I came across an expatriate community that uh, introduced me to the world of psychedelics, uh, primarily at first through the literature, because I was very afraid of psychedelics. I had completely believed in the um, kind of drug prohibition uh, education that uh, one dose of LSD would make you lose your mind. Uh, and uh, that time was a really important period of growth for me. 
and I decided that uh, I would dedicate my uh, career uh, to studying psychedelics and hopefully one day providing psychedelic psychotherapy. I had met Rick Doblin in 2006 at a conference and followed some of his advice in terms of a career path. And uh, I eventually found myself at the New School for Social Research, where I did a graduate degree uh, in clinical psychology uh, and interned all around the, the wonderful hospitals in, uh, in New York City for four years. And then at the end of my internship, uh, MAPS reached out to me and said, and asked me if I'd like to become a site co-principal investigator for the phase two and phase three trials. Uh, and eventually I said yes. And uh, that was one aspect of my, my time. I'm still a therapist on that trial on that, at that site, but I've, I've stepped down about a year ago. And uh, my co-founder at Fluence, Elizabeth Nielsen, has taken up that, that position with uh, our mutual friend, Casey Paleos, who's a psychiatrist. Um, at the same time, while I was pursuing my education, I befriended and had became had a mentor in uh, two people, uh, Dr. Jennifer Talley and Dr. Andrew Tatarski, who were who are deeply involved in the world of harm reduction psychotherapy for the treatment of substance use disorders, and uh, influenced by them uh, and their their approach to psychotherapy. Uh, Elizabeth and I created uh, a, a trans-theoretical framework for working with people who use psychedelics, which is essentially psychedelic harm reduction, integration, and preparation. That's not not really like the title of our. We're not uh, you know trying to copyright that. It's not that's not what it is. It's it's just sort of. Uh, um, but it but it it, it uh, encapsulates what the approach is, right? And so, um, in a kind of parallel to. Being involved with the MAPS work, we were also evolving this model for working with patients who come to your private practice who have an interest in psychedelics and how do you as a clinician work with them. And we also began to provide some education to clinicians in the community. We started a few workshops back in 2016-ish, uh, and there was a lot of interest from the mental health community about how to work with clients who are using psychedelics or have an interest in psychedelics. And there was so much interest in it that in 2019, Elizabeth and I decided to form Fluence, which is our psychedelic education company. Uh, and there are really two arms of, uh, of our company. One is training clinicians in the community, which I spoke to already. But the other side of it is working with um, drug sponsors or, or drug companies, psychedelic drug companies. And this is something that's a little bit less visible. Uh, on the internet, um, just because, well, we don't, we, we're hoping to advertise that more, <laughs> but it's just not something that we, we advertise, but through word of mouth, different drug sponsors reach out to us and say, Hey, I, I got a molecule. I got an indication. We want to take through the FDA process, but we don't know anything about psychotherapy. Um, could you please help us? And so Fluence helps write therapy manuals and, develop therapy uh, training materials and then eventually leads trainings for these therapists who are going to be on these clinical trials. Um, and I see that really as kind of shepherding and um, holding on to the kind of sacredness, if you will, 
of that that psychotherapy component in you know, we talk about drug assisted psychotherapy psychedelic assisted therapy we're trying we're trying to kind of really make sure that that is um, retained through the through the treatments um, I'll say that we since December we've hired 10 full-time staff we have upwards of over 20 uh, teaching assistants um, so we're really growing pretty quickly as a, as a company and so uh, maybe I'll end on this note that uh, I'm a psychologist foremost but I've also uh, now I'm dipping my toes into business as a CEO which is a really interesting uh, it's making me grow in in ways that I, I uh, did not anticipate so that's um well there's a lot lot to unpack there. I think <clears throat> let's dive right in to the weeds with um, we, you know, this podcast is altered states of context and we sort of, um, Brian and I share sort of a contextual behavioral lens that we view therapy through. Like we, we practice act and we kind of, uh, you know, view things through a functional contextual lens um, and are really interested in, in the therapy aspect of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and how, how that's integrated and how that's best leveraged. And so, and it's sort of a frontier that we don't really know anything about. <laughs> um, at least not mm -hmm. empirically. There's not a lot that's, that, you know, that's, that's been differentiated, you know, in that space. Um, and so I wonder just what you found, uh, you know, with the model, I, I, the trans theoretical formula you use, I don't framework. I don't remember what you called it specifically, but just what, what, you know, I assume that that's sort of like just taking uh, the best, um, trying to integrate uh, the best knowledge we do have into an overall um, view of what the therapy and psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is uh, best does. What would be if you had a brief overview of that you could give us? Yeah, I, and it's helpful. These conversations always complex because. Um, you know, there are these two things that I, there are two models or maybe context, speaking of context, there's two contexts that I work in or train in, which is working with clinicians in the community who are already working with patients who um, have a relationship to psychedelics or using psychedelics. And then there's the clinical trial, psychedelic assisted therapy. So maybe it's helpful to distinguish psychedelic assisted therapy is where you're administering the psychedelic and doing therapy. Maybe we could just loosely say psychedelic integration and harm reduction is where you're working with people where you're not giving them the psychedelic, but you still are doing therapy with them. Uh, in terms of our trans-theoretical approach to working with people in that uh, community context, in that psychedelic integration and harm reduction context, it really is an integration of what we've learned uh, from really many of the elders, people who've come before us in terms of some of the uh, best practices that have been passed down and also integrated in, say, MAPS's uh, clinical approach to MDMA for PTSD, you know, notions of uh, you know, the non-specific amplifier, set and setting, uh, interdirected approach, um, you know, education in, around preparation. Also, there's a good amount of um, discussion around drug stigmatization, uh, and and uh, that's sort of a that's maybe an addition to what's done in the clinical trials because you know uh, when people are using psychedelics on their own, there's a whole um, uh, social political context when they choose to use a, 
an illegal substance. There's just a lot there to be worked with. Um, on the psychedelic assisted and clinical trial side of things, um, there is a, I was having a conversation today uh, and it really is a bit of a chicken and egg kind of question around how do you design the therapy or what does the therapy look like? And I'll, I'll expand on that a little bit, which is when you do a phase two or, or even a phase three study uh, to looking with the FDA, looking at a psycho, psychedelic compound and psychedelic assisted therapy, um, you're really looking at the question of does this work or does it not work for a particular diagnosis or symptom? And so um, that that question is really easily hmm, it's well suited to non-psychedelic pharmaceuticals because you don't really need to know the mechanism of action. You just got to like how it works. You just got to see if it works or not. But when you begin to introduce a psychotherapy into that process, you, you, it's hard to design like a neutral psychotherapy. Like the psychotherapy has to have some assumed mechanism of action. Like you design the therapy to be working with you know, right? Is it cognitions? Is it, is it somatic? Is it uh, oriented towards the spirituality? Like, what what is it? And so, there's the chicken and egg, right? We don't necessarily know how psychedelics work, yet we are kind of put into a position where we have to have some kind of um, theoretical, uh, or even more than theoretical, but like a conceptual basis in which the psychotherapy rests. Yeah, and it's tricky too because there's not a lot of, um, you know, between one psychotherapy school and another, you know, there's not a lot of evidence saying like this psychotherapy is reliably better than that psychotherapy is reliably better than this psychotherapy. But you do have to have psych for the sake of consistency. This is what we're trying to do. You know, this is how we think change happens, and this is how we think psychedelics impact that process of change. Because, you know, processes of change, in my belief, processes of change are processes of change, whether they're psychedelic or whether they're in another context. I mean, change happens the way that change happens, I think. Um, I think that psycho psychotherapy can kind of perhaps accelerate that in um, in a very big way mm. sometimes. Um so you're trying to build around it. Do you build around a specific therapy or, you know, in, in different, like, do you build protocols around various therapies? Various therapies. I think what we do is we look at the drug um, and we look at the indication. And the way that I like to talk about it is um, find a, a mechanism of action that is specific enough that you can a psychological mechanism of action that's specific enough that you can tailor the, and you, or you identify a psychotherapy that's really com compatible with it. And then um, you, you design it in such a way that it's not overly restrictive, that you're um, eliminating the possible beneficial effect of other mechanisms, right? So, um, so, so maybe to make it less conce like conceptual and more um, concrete, say, um, say in depression, uh, often a component of depression can be a really r rigid 
sense of how a person is in the world, their sense of their identity and um, the the context of that that identity lives in, exists in. And we might hypothesize that perhaps a psychedelic experience would um, loosen up that sense of certainty about the, uh, themselves and the world. And then we might introduce um, a kind of therapy that brings in and evokes uh, an exploration of a person's value system. Now, and so we would shape a, a, a therapy around that, but we wouldn't do that at the exclusion of wherever else the participant wants to go. So if, if we have a session where, say, part of the therapy manual is that the, um, the therapist says something like, now, now after we're in our integration session and you had spoken previously in our preparation sessions about these values that you hold to be certain, um, have there, what have you noticed about your values now? Has, has there been a shift? And the participant may say, yeah, yeah, you know, I thought this is, this is the change or this is what it has, there's been the significant shift for me. Or they might say, you know, I don't even understand how values fit into this. Like I was, I became one with everything <laughs> and i like that that seems like such a uh a minute aspect of this really prof profound like what do you mean uh, i value and in which case we need to be flexible enough in our therapeutic delivery to not say no 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 like that's nice but no let's talk about the values right so it's it's really kind of having uh, again a a a, a idea around a mechanism of action and something to, to the, um, guide the therapy a little bit, but also room to move away from that if that's necessary. It's, it's interesting. You, you, you talked about, um, how we don't know how psychedelics work, which I think is, you know, from a scientific perspective, it's, you know, we've got some evidence, but there's still so much up in the air and it, it you know, makes me wonder, I thought about this, you know, the non-directive approach has been a very common element of psilocybin assisted therapy, MDMA assisted therapy. And, you know, is that because that, that truly is the best way to work with these medicines or these experiences, or is that just because we don't have a good theory yet? We don't understand them well enough. So we are sort of taking a more hands-off, let's keep it as open as possible until we can better understand how these um, different medicines might enact um, processes of change. Yeah, I I'm of the mind that it it also kind of speaks to what session are we talking about. I think that in the dosing sessions, that um, re really that more interdirected approach or non-directed approach is really appropriate. Um, there's this really wonderful quote. I'm going to mess mess it up. It was from Bill Richards in, in an article. Uh, he says something like that uh, the individual, when a person takes a psychedelic, that there's a kind of genius to what they are, they can sometimes encounter, that it's more well designed than anything uh, anybody externally could design for them. Right. And that's what, that's what psychotherapies are, right? They're like, they tend to be our ideas, our design of a kind of experience that the patient should have that will help them get better. Um, and so for those, those dosing sessions, I am a, 
pretty big advocate for the interdirected approach. Also, because I do think that you know you can make an intervention there, and if you're on, it could be spot on. Um, but if if it's not, I think it could really go poorly sometimes. Um, now, when we're talking about preparation and integration, I think there's a there's a lot more room for um, moving away from that interdirected. And we still want to be, of course, in alignment with the patient, right? Like patient-centered. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation on how the, particularly those integration sessions, um, what they look like. And, you know, you have multiple integration sessions. So maybe the first integration session is a little, continues that interdirected approach, but maybe as you get further out, um, you might be doing more directed um, activity. But I think your underlying comment is, is valid, which is we really, there's so much that we don't know. Um, and I think it is better to start a little bit more open-ended and then begin to become more specific as we, as we understand more. I really like the, uh, I, the other <clears throat> thing is, sorry, oh, or sorry, okay. if, I, if I just can just say one more thing, which sure. is like, I also believe that there are multiple mechanisms of action happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, that I think also reflects, there isn't just one answer to that question of how it works. Right. And maybe different mechanisms for different people under different circumstances. Yeah. 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 I really like to think about it as like embedded, um, you know, I, and I think there's a difference like a, when you're studying it, when we're doing um, trials, right. There's a, there's a certain procedure that needs to happen to standardize it to a certain degree. Um, but one thing about just uh, implementing it, you know, not in a uh, research setting, you know, I just, to me, I always think about it like really embedded in the process of psychotherapy. Cause I think ultimately it's like, if you have a, a, a good relationship with this psychedelically informed therapist, you know, like, I don't know that it's necessarily going to be like, here's three sessions and then a dosing session and three more. And then it might be like, well, here's eight to where we get to know each other and we get to really understand what's going on. And then we think you're at a really good time where maybe an MDMA session would really be the right thing now. And then there's four or five sessions and then it seems really useful to have one again. And then maybe there's one and it's like, we got to go right back there. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, more flexibility, I think in uh, ultimately is going to, but embedded in a process of psychotherapy, I think is the point of that. Like, and I, I guess one thought I had is if it is embedded in a process of psychotherapy and if the sessions are viewed in this really sort of like non-directed way, how essential do you think it is that the therapists who do the dosing are the same therapists who are the psychotherapists or if that could be done in like close integration with one another? So you had maybe like psychedelic specialists who were integrated with the team, like they could, they, they knew what each other was going on, but like... I'm not going to be your therapist. I'm just going to sit with you in this trip and keep, and keep you safe and not really intervene. Like, I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's, I, I think that we should explore all, a lot of different, like different models. I mean, that's sort of a, a an answer, non-answer, <laughs> uh, but I've, you know, maybe the, a, a parallel to that is, you know, do, being in private practice and working with people, not doing psychedelic assisted therapy in private practice, but doing psychedelic integration and harm reduction where I am doing preparation and integration and some of my patients um, do psychedelics 
on their own or in another context. Um, for some, that works, like doing it with somebody else. But some of them say, you know, I just, to me, I really wish you were there. Like there is this loss of continuity or break in continuity um, or that that sense of safety and trust has been developed with me, but maybe not so much with um, the other people that the person is doing psychedelic with. So, but for, but for some, it's not really an issue. Like they develop a relationship and trust with that other uh, person. Um, so it's, I think it's an open question. And, and, but it does, it's a really important question because it, it has to do with what is the structure in which this, like the treatments take place. Is it uh, like, are you a sing, a private practice therapist? Like, well, essentially the scenario that Nate, you have described, right? Where it's like eight, let's do eight sessions and then we'll see where we get. And then we'll see what, you know, like this really um, uh, kind of adaptable, adaptive to the specific patient's needs. Uh, or is it going to be like, you have to go to a, a center, a psychedelic center uh, where perhaps there are the psychedelic therapists who do the sessions and then there are the prep and integration? Uh, or is it a thing where the person's in private practice seeing therapists in long-term therapy as we already do, and then that patient is sent off to a psychedelic center and then comes back? Like uh, It reminds me actually a little bit of the different kinds of approaches to substance use treatment, you know, integrated approaches versus parallel approaches. Uh, you know, like, is it all happening in one place or is it compartmentalized? I think we would want it to be as integrated as possible. Yeah. I've wondered a lot about, well, because so much of, so we, so we talk about the, the, the therapy and the before and after and like making sense of it, right? Like you're preparing for it. You're making sense of what happened afterwards. Uh, but then thinking about just like within the session itself, like while a person is mm. tripping, um, it's like, well, what elements of the context? And we don't know this answer. So, I mean, it's sort of just like speculative and interesting. Um, you know, what elements of that setting are, are the most important and what are, um, you know, like the relationship or the person you're sitting with, that's obviously a big element mm -hmm. of your, of your context. You know, you have people sitting with you. That's a huge thing and your relationship with them and your history of your relationship with them. Um, the physical space often in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, it's like in a room and, and, and whatnot. Um, uh, not in psychotherapy assisted, not in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. It might be like a outdoors or a campfire or something like that. Um, the music, music is so interesting and like what, um, you know, what effect does that have? What elements of music? And, um, I think, you know, so like within the session, there's so many other contextual variables other than just the relationship and the, and the therapist present. Um, what do you, what do you find or what do you, uh, like are the contextual elements within the session that are of, of greatest import, or at least would you like to know more about than we know right now? Yeah, I think, you know, you've, you hit on a number of the important ones. Maybe I'll mention something that um, is not talked about very much, which is um, the notion of institutional transference, you know, which is the relationship to the, the institution. So I remember, I think this was Matthew Johnson talking about how um, he felt that for many of the participants, Johns Hopkins has, you know, a, a reputation and a positive one and then it's a medical setting so there's for some people uh, that creates a sense of safety like there's a doctor present 
again, they don't even, the doctor doesn't even have to be physically there. It's the transference of the institution that, that you know, that's what this institution represents, you know, medicine. And that can allow a person to surrender. But it's also really important to remember the, right, what is culturally congruent, right? So for some people, um, the, the sense of you know, participating in a research study uh, or interacting with doctors is actually threatening um, because of past uh, history, either personal or uh, collective. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's not, it's like there isn't one exactly right type of institution um, for everybody, but it's having an awareness of what it represents. And there's, you know, the same thing can, you know, this this lens could be applied to to maps or to the drug various drug sponsors. Um, it also, in a way, applies to like shamanic settings. Like we don't think about shamanism as an institution, <laughs> but it is. It sort of is, right? Like for for a person to engage in psychedelic use in a in a in a indigenous setting or uh, a say a spiritual community like that that. Again, it, it can go either way. So, so for example, I've seen participants in the MDMA trial for whom um, using, like, going to use a psychedelic in uh, the in um, nature is so it's um, it's it's it would be they wouldn't do it. It's just too frightening and foreign for them, and the kind of setting that we offered to them was very reassuring. Like you guys are serious about this. You're really and not, and again, not to say that people who are using it outside of that context aren't serious. That was just at that person's transference. Um, so that's an important context to, to think about. Yeah. It's really interesting out, you know, out here in Oregon with measure 109, the bill was written, my understanding of it um, with the, with, with the spirit in mind of being able to have, a variety of formats where people can access psilocybin services. So, you know, the bill is written in such a way that, you know, if you want a mental health professional, that's possible. If you want a more like concierge resort experience, that will be possible too. If you want a spiritual, religious uh, a person to guide your experience, you know, that, that it's sort of... Uh, aiming for as wide a variety of, of uh, you know, methods of delivery, which I, I think is a, is a strength of the bill. And as a therapist, you know, careful not to tr try not to speak about psychedelic assisted therapy in such a way as to um, insinuate that we have the monopoly on it, that this is the only way, the right way, the best way. And we can get into this sort of psychedelic exceptionalism pretty easily. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we when we talk about it, so I'm I'm glad you I never heard that term institutional transference. It's a really interesting idea, and I could see how that would be a really important factor for a lot of a lot of folks. Yeah, yeah. You know, speaking about Oregon, I uh, I've I've learned a lot more about Oregon. I've never been. I, I hear it's a really beautiful beautiful place. Definitely on my my bucket list. Um, but as I've been learning more about Oregon. Um, there are elements of it that remind me a lot of the Czech Republic. Um, one, you know, somebody shared with me that the Oregonians like, and p please forgive me if this is a mischaracterization, but that the, like that Oregonians kind of, it's important that, that they do things their way, that it's sort of, that they're not, there's no outside group uh, outside of the state telling them this is how it should be done. 
Um, and I, I find that that's very similar to, to checks in many ways. Mm-hmm. And then also sort of the, the prevalence of psilocybin, naturally occurring psilocybin mushrooms. Um, and, it, you know, I think a lot about the context in which psychedelic therapy will emerge in the United States and in uh, the Czech Republic and in Europe. And uh, in, in Czech, we, the hobichki uh, is a word. Hoba is, is mushroom. Hobichki means little mushrooms. And when you say it's diminutive, and when you say little mushrooms, you are referring to psilocybin bohemica, the, the, little, the little mushrooms that are, have psilocybin in them. And it's just this interesting. Um, I don't have a, a necessarily a point with this, except that um, you know, what do you do when you're trying to? What does it look like when you're trying to introduce psychedelic therapy to a community of people with, for whom that already have a relationship with psychedelics? Mm-hmm. And um, in the Czech Republic, off psychedelic these mushrooms by some are seen as, yeah, these are spiritual experiences and this is, you know, they can be healing and helpful, but for a lot of people, it's just a way to, another way to, uh, you know, they'll, they'll mix it with alcohol and it's just a way to kind of, uh, just feel like be, feel intoxicated. Um, and so, uh, again, that's not everybody, but, that's definitely part of the culture as you, you grow up. Well, there's this question of like both introducing it to the wider public as a tool, um, but also um, you can't tell them, well, this is the, this is the right way to use it because they have a re- an existing relationship with these, um, these mushrooms. Yeah. And I mean, it's especially offensive to cultures who've been using these medicines for, long periods of time, especially when, you know, we, they're so new to us and for us to sit, you know, for, for someone to say like this medical westernized framework is the, is the best way or right way. Um, I, I was curious, uh, Ingmar, if, about um, your, your history uh, in terms of uh, the Czech Republic and, and Europe and psychedelics. I remember I, I went to one of your fluence trainings. Uh, I think it was in 2019 or something. And, you had you were giving a little uh, overview of the history, and and so much of the history is the narrative that you know many of us are very familiar with. You know Timothy Leary and Maria Sabina, um, but you talked about uh, the last known history of psychedelics in Europe. I, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about some of the some of the history um, in the West of psychedelic use that that our audience may be less familiar with. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. Um, so I can speak to largely uh, the former Czechoslovakia. That's when uh, during uh, that's when much of this uh, work had taken place. Um, the history really goes back also to the discovery of mescaline, which uh, predated uh, LSD and psilocybin again in the European context, and. Uh, there was um, a his name was I can't remember his first name right now. It was oh Svetozar Svetozar Nevole, and um, I could never really understand uh, his work. He was heavily influenced by um, and I'm going to botch this pronunciation. I think it's French Poincar. 
he was a mathematician, like a theoretical mathematician, maybe physicist. Anyway, I think I believe this is like the 1920s. Um, but that's an e- early record within the former Czechoslovakia where um, he he used mescaline himself, Nevola, and uh, wrote some uh, pretty heavily kind of mathematically theoretical uh papers and and I think a book or two on um, the notion of again this sort of subjective perception and how how perception interacts with kind of objective uh, reality if you will or the ex- uh, the scene world um, and it's just one of these themes that just continues to reemerge or you know, in those decades, the first half of the 20th century in the United States and, and elsewhere around the one, the theme that I like to point to is this breakdown between uh, objectivity and subjectivity or the intermingling of these things, whether it be through like the, the psychotic, the psychotomimetic theory, or it's, you know, the, the um, Aldous Huxley's, you know, uh, um, the um, reducing valve, the filtration kind of hypothesis. Uh, it's just this recurrent theme that comes up. Uh, then you have the discovery of uh, the psychoactive properties of LSD. And uh, the, the Czechoslovakia was uh, the sort of West, well, aside from East Germany, was um, one of the more Western uh, geographically located countries. And so uh, there was some exchange going on between uh, Sandoz, the, co- the pharmaceutical company that produced LSD, and uh, the researchers in uh, the former Czechoslovakia. And uh, it wasn't long that Czechs began to produce their own LSD uh, at a pharmaceutical company called Spos- Spofa. Uh, that was all, um, of course, nationalized under the, the communists. And uh, you really had a uh, an emergence of psychedelic research happening there. I mean, there were hun- hundreds of papers that were published on dozens of different topics. Uh, one of the unique things culturally was that you didn't. There was no. Um, there were no hippies. <laughs> I mean, that's a, not. To, I don't. I don't mean that pejoratively. Just uh, they're just psychedelic use did not really escape the research setting or the labor the laboratory setting, if you will, um, in in the former Czechoslovakia. And you had uh, there are different models. That, you know, there were some uh, kind of neurologists who had a very biological perspective, just like sort of it's parallels our current times or. The times in the U.S., you had uh, some psychotherapists that were really focused on the therapy. There were a few people who were really focused on the mysticism aspect of it. All mental health professionals and all in that in that setting. Um, and many people know Stan Groff, but few people know um, a man named Milan Hausner, um, and he uh, conducted thousands of sessions of, of LSD in a in a community based setting. Uh, now I'm blanking on the name of the the area uh, outside of Prague where um, he had there was a center, and it was the the way that they were conducting therapy was really interesting. It was not like our current model at all. It was more of like community mental health, um, where, with people spending sometimes several days or a week at a center. Uh, sometimes they are the ones that are re- the patients are receiving the 
the psychedelics. Sometimes the patients are doing, they're not on the psychedelic, but they're doing peer support for others. So it's a really kind of a very different model. Um, you know, it all ended in 1974. The, the, the interesting thing about that was uh, the communists, there are different ideas about why it ended. One that I think is um, makes a lot of sense is that uh, the the USSR was using what was going on in the United States uh, in terms of um, use of psychedelics amongst the hippies and other groups as a way to say, look at, you know, the USSR, the propaganda would say, look at those hedonist, you know, Americans and their drug use. And, you know, it became a propaganda tool and they could, they couldn't do that and um, have the research happening at the same time. Um, And so they really, they went along and um, also prohibited uh, the research. Um, and there was a lot of politic. There are a lot of politics involved. Um, there was a lot of pressure on the researchers who were working with psychedelics for um, their um, potential therapeutic value. Uh, but there was also a lot of um, research going on by the like, communist secret service to. Um, Sort of similar to the MK Ultra in the United States, but seeing if these psychedelics could be used as essentially tools of persuasion, um, there was a lot of intermingling there. That's a that's a little bit of the history. Yeah, there's there's a lot more that I could go into. Um, that's a little taste of it. Yeah. Yeah, it was super interesting for me to hear when you first talked about it. You know, I. Um, embarrassed to admit, I had a very you know U.S. centric view of 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 the '60s, and 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 for for audience to know that there there was a there was a lot happening in other places as well. One thing I could maybe add is that there are different, um, you know, although uh, I'll say that it, the psychedelics were tightly controlled in the former Czechoslovakia, um, they were prob there were probably important political figures uh who then played a role in uh you know the fall of the the iron curtain who uh, were psychedelically influenced too hmm. um i mean one you know there's a there's a czech uh revival well, not revival there's a czech band called uh the plastic people of the universe who were very strongly influenced by the Velvet Underground. Um, and they were co- very connected to um, what was called Charter 77, which um, Václav Havel um, and other intellectuals were um, signed as a opposition to the uh, communist regime. Well, that's really, really fascinating to think about, like the, how, uh, how that played out and would play out in a, in a, complete, in a very repressive uh, situation, you know, I mean, obviously the U.S. in the '60s was had somewhat repressive, but clearly that, I mean, not, <laughs> not like over, like there was room, and it, you know, it kind of exploded in that way. But to see it unfold in a repressive environment is interesting. Yeah, I'd actually love to, you know, your 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 comment reminded me. It's funny how you know, it these things emerge to to, to consciousness. I totally forgot about this. Uh, 
but you know, part of my research that I did just as a way of background was to go, this was around 2006, 2007, my a Czech colleague and I traveled around the Czech Republic and interviewed uh, the people who had used LSD in a research context uh, during its period of legality from the 50s to 70s. And we interviewed them. We had a semi-structured interview. We were particularly interested in the didactic utility of of psychedelics for training of mental health professionals. And I asked one of, uh, I can't remember who it was now. We asked somebody about their psych- their LSD experience. And I believe it was a woman. And she, I think she said something like that the, that the country, you, you know, you're, you're talking about um, how repressive it was. You know, this person said, well, you, you know, you would walk outside and all of the buildings were this gray brown color and it's true like if i remember this from when i was a child when i visited prague for the first time you know the there was no it was just shades of gray <laughs> in terms of like paint right and and of course you were you were also in a you were in prison in a way right you couldn't travel outside uh, of the country for the most part at least not outside of the soviet union and so this respondent said, well, LSD was sort of a way that experience allowed her to um, travel, not travel the world, but sort of see color, to be able to uh, go to places in, in her mind um, that were sort of not accessible um, physically in that environment because it was so repressive. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's a that is a really cool image to just like close my eyes, close my eyes and think of like, um, you know, because I've been to Prague too, so I have that sort of image of that just sort of gray. I mean, I, I, it's a beautiful city on the one hand, but there is I, I hear what you're saying about the color or lack thereof, and and just to like close my eyes and imagine just that like paint splashed everywhere. <laughs> sort of when you when you tell that story, that's yeah. what, what happens in my mind. Just thinking like this Technicolor paint, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, luckily, uh, you know, things have, have changed a lot. Um, and so you, you get, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful place to, uh, I mean, just to speak about Prague, I think that it, uh, I think it is a psychedelic city (laughs) unto itself. And, um, I believe that uh, there's a there's a street where there's they still have a whole bit, like a big statues of of the psilocybin behemica, <laughs> uh, um, like there's a statue of of, of magic magic mushrooms, <laughs> uh, a big one, a bit's a big art uh, exhibit. I think that's still there, um, you know. And and there's this this rich tradition of alchemy uh, that goes back hundreds of years. So it's the the sort of magic that exists in that city. Uh, I. It's still it's still alive and well. Hmm. I wish I would have known. I was a uh, I went there when I was twenty one. I was in college and I studied abroad in Denmark for a semester, and then I was able to go to Prague for a few days. And um, I was very very interested in this line of discussion at that point in my life and ever since. But I wish I had known more of this history and how to investigate it while I was there. <laughs> Mm. yeah yeah that's really fun that's really fun to think about um just a completely different cultural context because that's that's all i you know know is you know the way it like 
has been around me in the in the cultural context of the United States of America. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to this question of like the where we touched upon earlier, which is like, what is the right way to use a psychedelic? And I think it's um, there are many many right ways, and I think for the Czech people, and maybe I'm romanticizing a little bit, but um, Czechs have a they have a often they have a cottage, a summer home. Um, and that may not, that's not necessarily like, it's not a chateau. <laughs> it's not always mm-hmm. glorious. I mean, sometimes, it, you know, there's, there's uh, just an outhouse and, and no bathroom I- inside. Um, but th- so they have a place where they live uh, during the week and the, the weekdays, and then they go to the countryside for the weekend. And so having their feet and hands in the dirt is uh, a really important um relationship for them and uh you know sometimes the kind of philosophical um in connections to you know when the the kind of philosophical musings uh or the intellectual musings connected to psychedelics i think sometimes for some some checks it's a lot less about that and much more about just getting in touch with the earth mm-hmm. that's a certainly a you know that that whole makes me think of uh, mycelium and decomposition and, and dark and, and, you know, and, and breaking down. And, you know, that's the part that like, when I think about um, a psychedelic trip, I think about the, the term like a conceptual solvent, like something that just breaks down concepts um, mm-hmm. and our, our conceptual categories. And that to me, that has that sort of dark soil um, mycelium, energy to it of just like decomposing decomposing those concepts like it decomposes the the matter in the soil um yeah that that's that's what i you know when you say that i go to that sort of dark network of decomposition you know along those lines i mean it's it's very difficult to trace I always want to give proper due to certain ideas that I've heard, like who I heard it from. I think I heard this from Chantel Thomas, but um, it's it's like when you're in the psychedelic uh, field and community and you're talking to different people, it's really hard to remember who said what or where it began. But uh, along those lines, I'm becoming more and more fond of the idea of psychedelics as just just, just refer them as a disruptor. Kind of like how that mycelium network you were talking about and decombi- breaking down, um, and I think that that's you know that can be one journey for a patient or just a person when we're uh, talking about psychedelic work, uh, and we want to kind of harness that disruption for good, but disruption can also be um, uh, it can be. Uh, very challenging territory to, to navigate. Yeah. And and I think that that's coming up now and it will continue to come up. I, I think when I look to the future, you know, around what are some of the challenges that we might face, like current, there's, there still, I think, is mostly a, um, a very, what do you call it? Like positive relationship between um, like general news coverage and um, also like the scientific community embracing psychedelics as this new novel treatment with a lot of potential. But I often wonder if like, okay, once we get past that, um, that, uh, uh, um, 
honeymoon. Maybe then we'll be starting. There'll be a lot of questions around this this disruptive aspect of these experiences and treatments. And then I think we need to be talking about it now, so that um, it's it, people are prepared. I mean, it's <laughs> you know, like preparation, uh, like on a on a social cultural level, preparation. I really like that way of looking at at psychedelics as. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a destabilizing agent and that sometimes mm-hmm. that, that can really lead to growth and change. Um, I, I, sometimes I think about the, the phrase, um, be careful what you wish for, because I'll have clients mm-hmm. come in and they'll say, I want a new perspective, or I want to look at things differently, or I want to step outside of my day-to-day box. And it's like, you know, even, even when that goes well, sometimes that can be really, difficult to deal with. And I, I, I agree that that's probably a less publicized aspect of psychedelics in our current narrative about how they can really uh, change the way you think about everything, you know, not, and that doesn't happen to every single person. And I agree that again, you know, the idea would be, can we harness that for good? But in some ways it's a risk, right? You're taking a risk that by introducing this experience that we don't know how it's going to end up. And, you know, we hope that we can provide support in a container so that that clients and individuals can grow and benefit from it. Um, but we can't make that guarantee. And, and in the trials, we do see people, you know, have challenging experiences and, and struggle with um, trying to make sense of them or trying to go back to their daily lives after what they've experienced. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, um, it sort of speaks to the limitations of the metaphors that we have for um, the, this psychedelic therapy or or this work um, or these experiences. Um, I know that Jeff Gus is pretty critical and I'm pretty critical as well of the notion of like a reset. That's a, that's a like, you know, as if it was a computer that you could like reset. And again, the metaphor has its benefits, but also I think it's limitations. Um, Another metaphor that people talk about and has come up a lot actually with psychedelics as in it's in the kind of the limelight is, well, psychedelics are not about symptom management uh, as our traditional pharmaceuticals, but they get to the root of the problem. Uh, and this idea of the the met- root as a metaphor, and like if we hold that to be true, you know, if if we are with our patient digging around or or kind of um, playing with the root, I mean, it, it has both great potential, right? Because we are getting at the core of something, but also uh, there's greater room for. Uh, you know, whatever intervention or change that takes place there is going to have a more significant impact than if you were working on the the surface, and that impact can be dramatic and it can be challenging for people. Uh, like to you know, to use your metaphor, Brian, like you can't once you take it out of the box, you can't put it back in the box. It's like it's you've seen what's in there. Um, it's hard to put back put a, put away. You know, I think a lot about the uh, before. I was, uh, you know, um, a clinician before I was in psychology when I was young. Um, and just the vernacular of the way I and others would talk about psychedelic experiences um, and the metaphors that would rise from that when you weren't trying to be sort of precise mm. or delicate. Um, but like, 
you know, it's just like taking a, a two by four upside your head and shit breaks and then it comes <laughs> back together. Right. And like, <laughs> there's something really true about that. You know, that metaphor that really, you don't, you're yeah. not going to say that in a psychology experiment. Like you're, you're trying to be clinical, you're trying to be a lot more delicate right. than that, but there is something in the experience that is that imprecise. It's just going to scramble shit yeah. and then it's going to come back together somehow. And yeah, it's not a controlled process. It just isn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. My friend used to use the, that metaphor reminds me of a metaphor a friend used, of mine used to use, which was like, for him, his relationship to psychedelic was, psychedelic was that it was something he'd do once a year. And it was sort of, uh, he said it was like taking your, his brain and putting it into the toilet and like flushing the toilet, you know, not, not that it would go down into the sewage system, but it would just sort of like, you know, splash around in the water and kind of get cleaned and, and, you know, bounce around the toilet bowl and then, you know, put the brain back in his head and it would be like slightly, you know, just to get a little refresh. <laughs> so I definitely wouldn't share that with a, a participant in a trial, but <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, it is imprecise and uh, it is, I, one thing I actually have spoken to some participants about in um, trials, <laughs> uh, maybe not totally adherent to the therapy manual, uh, but maybe going off a little bit on my own, which is uh, chaos. Yeah. And like, let's like having a conversation about uh, chaos. And I guess that is the, maybe that is consistent. It's more like the nonlinear process, yeah. but um, you know, is there, is there room and safety for, uh, for that? in a person's life. And I think that's where we talk, you know, I, I, and I agree. And I think talking about the dangers is really important. And it's one that's very, that's tended to be very hard because we are in, uh, we have been in the last uh, few decades, an environment of prohibition and misinformation and just, yeah, just a terrible discursive environment about psychedelics. Um, and, and so I think there's a lot of uh, dangers that get talked about that are in my view, not really, that dangerous, but then there's the actual dangers that mm. are, um, you know, and like mm. we think about this in a clinical context. And I, I, I think about people who are really hurt, right? Really maybe a lot of trauma or something like that. And, and perhaps their coping mechanisms are hold, held together very, very precariously. Right. And so you take the two by four to that um, and the bottom falls out and then Holy shit, that person's left in a real, real different world. Um, and I, I think that's one of the risks of this is like, okay, so it, it is sort of removing. Now, I think it's uh, probably generally true that what it's that a lot of those coping mechanisms are holding, th holding things together in a way that is not allowing the person to grow, <laughs> right? So it's actually necessary for healing, but it also the, 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 the way in which that can unleash, um, what a person's been trying really hard to not unleash is really important. Yeah. And it's, and it speaks to the container and, yeah. and this is like, this is why, I mean, psychedelics are disruptors, not just for the individual psyche, but I do think that there are disruptors for um, the current like psychiatric system that we have. And, and, I, and I don't say that as like an anarchist or like a psychedelic utopian. I don't mean that like psychedelics are going to change the world and make it a better place necessarily. What I mean by that is that um, the way that, you know, right, just to your point, right, that traditionally I think any psychiatrist 
would admit that what is going on with traditional pharmaceuticals, psychiatric pharmaceuticals is symptom management. And so if we're going to be using tools that go beyond that, um, that uh, can be this disruptor, um, I, I do get a little bit worried around um, how psychedelics will be prescribed um, you know, with what kind of education and, and knowledge, right? Is it just like the, the general, the family doctor has heard that psilocybin is an antidepressant, says, you know what, patient, I think that you would be a good candidate for psilocybin. Hopefully then the next step would be that that patient would go to some informed clinician who works with psilocybin, who will be able to really educate properly around what are all of the things that we're talking about right now, right? Like what this could look like, it could be a disruptor is the, but you know, what is, what is in place to support a patient going through this process. But if that's not there and there's just simply this idea that it's a mechanistic, I take psilocybin, it's an antidepressant, um, then the bottom falling out for a person there, we are not really great as a, when it's now speaking about the U S context, uh, to provide the kind of um, additional support for a person when that that happens, um, and that's why I think psychedelics are going to be a disruptor in how we meet that disruption in terms of what kinds of additional support are we going to make available um, to patients going through these experiences. I think the, that's why long-term psychotherapy can be one great kind of container, mm -hmm. um, ongoing, like where a person has had a long-term relationship with a. The, a therapist, but that's not an, honestly, that's not a, enough for some people, right? Like if they don't that's have family right. support, you know, if they don't have a job, if you know, it's all the other, yeah. We don't have, I, I think you're, I think this is really important is that we don't have institutional structures to support this actually, I don't think. And we, so like in the process of learning about, uh, the processes of change in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and, and you know, we also think are having to be thinking about the institutions that are going to hold this and, and we don't have them. I mean, I think a lot of times, like there's been a lot of thought, like, well, we'll just piggyback them on existing infrastructure. And I think what you're pointing out is really true, which is our existing infrastructure isn't built for this. <laughs> it's not, it's, it, it's a totally different, it, it comes from a totally different worldview, I think. You know, it makes me, as I listen to you reflect what I said, <laughs> it makes me think about, um, you know, Robert Anton Wilson, who was one of my early kind yeah. of influences uh, in my early 20s. And, you know, he would say like, uh, you know, write a positive script, uh, not an, you know, not a negative one. And I feel like I went, I took us on a little bit into a, a negative, scary place. I think it needs to be examined. But, um, you know, on the other hand, what is interesting is to see uh, the kind of uh, organizations um like psychedelic societies, um, you know, Fireside Project, um, mm -hmm. and even some uh, like for-profit companies that are emerging to uh, contribute to the psychedelic ecosystem, mm -hmm. uh, where they're trying to really leverage community in order to provide support. Like so, these so our current institutions don't exist, aren't really set up to maybe support this. Um, but we a positive story would be. Uh, really organizations uh, coming together and finding other solutions. Yeah, absolutely. There's that. I, I, I do think, 
I don't mind a little negativity now and again because I think you have to name problems before you can deal with them. So I think that that's all yeah. right. But I do think that it does uh, it provides a tremendous opportunity. Those those institutions don't exist. They should exist. Now it's sort of like an opportunity to build them. Um, my ears perked up a little bit to go back into – you talked about uh, – you know, in uh, the former Czechoslovakia, and you talked about the the way they use peer support in community mental health centers, and it, I, my ears perked mm. up when you mentioned that for this very reason, because I think about well, what could be these contexts, right? Like um, they don't have to be what we always have viewed them as, <laughs> you know. And I think peer support is a really cool cool thought in this in this world. Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, it's sort of, again, like there's one aspect of it is this nationalized healthcare, right? So that's a big benefit um, in the Czech Republic that when a person really um, is struggling, there there are resources for the, to support them, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but also just to say that, you know, not everything is, uh, uh, you know, uh, just rosy there. I mean, there's a lot, there's much more stigma I think in Europe generally, but definitely in the Czech Republic, when it comes to just mental health generally, like I think one beautiful aspect of the U.S. is that it's not uncommon for people to talk openly about a th- therapy. Um, and we have to remember that in much of the world, uh, mental health is still extremely, st- I mean, stigmatized here too, but like it's extremely stigmatized in other countries. Um, in terms of those community models, yeah, I think it's there's just so much room for exploration. And I think what we're be- going to begin to see is in a clinical trial context, it's emerging that we're going to have uh, psychedelic therapies us- using group models. Mm-hmm. It's not a solution to what we talked about, but it's one step closer um, to um, leveraging community um, in the healing process. Yeah, uh, out uh, you know in, in Portland, there's the Portland Psychedelic Society, which is an example of a kind of peer-led, pretty big organization that runs many groups, including you know preparation groups, integration groups, and it's really beautiful to see people support each other. And and um, I, I run a, um, a support group for for folks um, as well. And and there there's something really um, different that can happen when you know, it's so normalized. People are supporting each other, giving each other advice and wisdom, checking in on each other. You know, hey, it's good to see you this month. You said you were going to do that trip. How did it go? And, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, so much more than what we can provide as a therapist in terms of, uh, you know, it, uh, the model of psychedelic assisted therapy. So I would love to see more, more group-based um, interventions and more community resources to be able to supplement people's journeying and their, and, and their uh, participation in psychedelic assisted therapy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I do think that it uh, takes on a, a whole additional dimension when you introduce just community. Well, it allows, for, it's, it is, um, it allows uh, for like a bottom up sort of like a bottom up creation rather than, you know, in a way it's sort of like, it is top down, you know, when you're talking about research and, you know, you know, it's like, we're, you know, kind of at a high level, sort of like having our ideas and imposing sort of like, well, this is what we think can be helpful and testing. I'm doing it, you know, um, you know, scientifically, 
But I think when you do introduce more community participation, when, when, you, when you have models that might allow for a lot of just peer support and things like that, you kind of allow for um, sort of an organic bottom up process of creating order of like from that chaos, you know, creating an order that might start to point to what some of these institutions might look like. I mean, to go back to mm-hmm. like, just to, I think I've to- told the story before, but like on the, on the show, but you know, when I was young and in college, uh, I, I took, I took, uh, you know, mushrooms on, on a lark just for fun because why not? Um, but they really, um, with a few friends and I, we just became totally, um, we recognized that there was something there that we were really interested in and, in that process, just over the course of uh, mm. a couple of years, started using them in a way that was just sort of organically ritualistic. Like we didn't go out and set like, okay, we mm. need to do it this way and create a plan, but it kind of arose from that. And we kind of explored it together, mm. but it did create this form and this container from nothing, you know? And that was a really cool mm-hmm. thing to see how that just arose because that's what needed to hold those experiences for us. And they became very, very healing and very interesting And so I think there's a lot that we should do to really recognize and encourage sort of like bottom up creation in in whatever these institutions are going to be. Yeah. Well, it also, it reminds me of, this is back to the the level of the individual therapist, but um, you know, that, that tension between best practices and then individual creation or co-creation with the, the, the patient or client. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that, that there needs to be also some degree of freedom. It's very, it's going to be just, I just can see how challenging it's going to be. Um, yeah. I think we really need like, um, and I know that there are organizations emerging trying to um, set standards and guidelines for people to be able to kind of practice within, like still have some, so have some freedom but um, also uh, there needs to be also some limitations as well. Yes. But for sure. I, I think that it's the, the, the rituals that we see, like it's interesting when you, as, as a therapist, if you think just to your own, I mean, we, we have rituals, right? I mean, the analysts talk about the psychotherapeutic frame, right? The frame is our ritual. Like, like, you know, payment is a ritual, uh, you know, where the, the client sits. Um, and then each individual client that we have, we, we have our own little mini rituals. Mm-hmm. How do you start the session? What do you, what do you ask? What do they want from you? It's like, you know, meaning like, what do they, what do they ask of you? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, it repeats, you see it like happen over and over and over again. Yeah. And I think that we so- have to, have that. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to think about and then wonder how that would generalize in psychedelic therapy. Like, you know, cause it is true. And I think about, uh, you know, people that come in and it would like start, um, especially ones that are really in a rut, like those will pretty quick come in and it's the same exchange for the first few exchanges. And so even a, an intervention that has nothing to do with anything would be, I'm just going to sit in a different place or start with a different sentence or something like that, just to intentionally throw some degree of entropy or some degree of disruption. Right. Because it's, Mm. um, I think a lot of times when people get really stuck, they're just, um, 
viewpoints, uh, perspectives, thought process becomes so, so, so rigid. And then this is, again, it's that, um, that two by four metaphor, <laughs> you know, breaking up some of that rigidity, but it isn't mm -hmm. necessarily gentle. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, as we begin to wrap up, I'd love to kind of circle back just to talk a little bit more about training and maybe you could talk a little bit more about some of the things you're doing at Fluence. You know, one of the things that I get asked most often by other clinicians is, um, how do I make sense of all the training programs that are out there in the landscape? What, mm -hmm. what should I do? What should I sign up for? I think for many clinicians who are especially new, they're just so overwhelmed. So I'm, I'm wondering what advice you have for folks like that and, and, you know, what kinds of programs are you offering at Fluence? Uh, it's a um, great way to pose that question. Um, the, I would, um, I would, answer that question with another question, which is, you know, to the listener, you know, what is your intention? Meaning what do you hope to gain from the training program? Uh, so one thing at Fluence is that we have a, a lot of different courses. We have clinical consultation groups. We have reading and study groups. We have, um, you know, those run for 12 weeks. It's a small cohort. You're really diving into particular topics. If it's a reading and study group, like for example, we have a psychoanalytic and psychedelic class, actually several of them. We have a psychological approaches to psychedelic therapy. We have a class on the psychopharmacology of um, psychedelics. We have a class on um, empirical, these empirically supported treatments. Those are this is these are all groups where um, there's reading involved. Uh, and then there's also interaction by an expert um, in the field. Uh, and so there, right, the intention would be, I want to really get some excellent training and information as it re relates to whatever given topic. But that's not necessarily going to enable somebody to legally do MDMA therapy or psilocybin therapy. That's not the goal of those classes. Um, but for example, if there's a person who is doing ketamine therapy or is doing psychedelic integration work and they want to get uh, some group consultation going on, then our consultation group would be a good fit. If one of your audience members is um, really new to this area and they want to get a good foundation in how to do psychedelic preparation and integration for their private practice clients, then um, we have a course called Psychedelic Premise and Promise. Um, the next one is coming up uh, actually in, in May, May 6th and 8th. That's a shorter time commitment, good way to get uh, uh, introduced. And then there's plenty of other uh, classes that, that we have. Um, the two uh, kind of big overarching offerings that we have is a psychedelic integration certificate program. Like that's like a much that's a bigger commitment, but if you wanted to get a certificate, it's about a 120-hour program. And then we have a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy certificate, which is also um, uh, about a similar time commitment. The nice thing about everything that we do is that it's modular. So you know, if you, say, took our Premise and Promise class and then, say, a reading group, um, and you purchased those, and then you like us so much and you're interested in taking the certificate program, those are prerequisites to 
or, or those are requirements to receive the certificate. So then the cost that you've already paid for those classes go uh, are, are, is taken away from the cost of the certificate. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's a highly customizable kind of build your own approach to us. Um, so one thing I haven't mentioned is that uh, all everything that we offer, just being really transparent, it does not allow you to legally administer MDMA or psilocybin, right? Because those are um, uh, there's the, the shifts going on in Oregon, but on a federal level, those are not um, legal treatments at this time. However, um, over the course of the next year uh, and or two, um, you will we will begin to offer trainings uh, in collaboration with different uh, drug sponsors to teach uh, their um, their approaches. Um, and we are hoping that when kind of the regulations emerge around the legal administration um, of these psychedelic therapies, that uh, because they were in line with um, these various drug sponsors that those will be um, uh, training programs that will allow you to then become a psychedelic therapist. Um, so that's really on on the horizon. I don't have any announcements to make about that today, but um, we have various projects in in the works. And and then I, and this I can say that with some degree of confidence because as I had said in the beginning of our conversation, what Fluence does is we don't just train therapists in the community. We also work hand in hand with the drug sponsors to help them through the drug approval process. And so we have a very close relationship with them. Yeah, that's super interesting. I look forward to hearing about those offerings. And yeah, I think your, your advice about, you know, if someone is curious about how to get involved, the first thing would be to clarify their intention is, is really good advice. I think a lot of people do get confused and they think that, you know, so I, I, this this particular program, whether it's through Fluence or another organization, is going to allow me to practice psychedelic assisted therapy, and and it is confusing. Even in Oregon, a lot of people assume that psilocybin is currently legal, while it's still a, a bit of a ways away. So, uh, it can be overwhelming to to navigate all of this landscape, and and it's constantly changing and evolving. So, um, I think it's, it it's something that can be very hard for a lot of people. Yeah, my suggestions to you know we are Fluence is a we call it a postgraduate program because it's for people who already. Ha- I mean, anybody can take the vast majority of our classes. You don't have to be a mental health professional, but um, it is really uh, our certificate programs are only for licensed mental health professionals or med- or medical professionals because we want them to put into practice what we teach them within the scope of their license. Um, but often I will get a question from somebody saying, I'm, I'm not a therapist. I don't have any, they're not trained in any method, but they want to be, become a psychedelic therapist. And my suggestion there is like, if that's something you really, really want to do, I would highly suggest that they get training uh, and some uh, degree that will allow them to have a license to, to practice because that's yeah. going to be a major issue. And I think particularly as we talk about malpractice insurance, um, I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's a battle for, Currently, it's a battle for clinicians to um, who, who want to practice ketamine-assisted psychotherapy to get malpractice insurance, and those are 
licensed individuals. I can't imagine how difficult it's going to be for unlicensed mental health providers <laughs> to to who want to do psychedelic therapy to get any kind of um, malpractice uh, insurance. Um, the other thing I would say is if you want to like. I, you know, fluence is not necessarily the right fit for absolutely everybody. So if for you, you really want to have a psychedelic experience as part of your training experience, um, that is something that fluence actually may end up offering uh, in the future. But right now, <clears throat> we don't do that. Um, so there are other training organizations that would be a better fit, better fit for that. Um, if you are really interested in primarily practicing through a kind of indigenous uh, informed um, approach, you know, fluence is more, um, you could say in the, as you could probably tell from the conversation, more of a um, kind of psychotherapy, psych psychiatric model. And so we wouldn't be the best fit for somebody who wants to um, kind of work within that kind of lineage. So these are, you know, it's, it's the right fit for the right person. Yeah. What do you want to gain as a student? Yeah. Well, thanks, Ingmar, for being with us today. It was a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate the, the thoughtfulness and the care and the integrity that you bring to the psychedelic space. And, you know, what your organization has done has been really influential in my own private practice. Your, your training helped me establish my psychedelic harm reduction and integration practice. And I know uh, a lot of other folks have benefited from your, your, your training programs. And, and so it was really nice talking with you. Hope to have you back maybe sometime in the future. Uh, but thanks again for your time. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah, thanks. I enjoyed the uh, little diversion through uh, Eastern Soviet bloc there for, for a little moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your mind's eye. <laughs>